thank you for joining us from wherever you are. This is the SBS Replay Podcast from the NYU School of Professional Studies Student Council. This season, we are proud to present our How I Got Here Lunchtime series, where we listen to the stories of our professors, alumni, and members of our community about their career, their journey, and how they got here. This week, we are joined by Michael Oppenheimer, Professor Michael Oppenheimer leads the Global Features Concentration in the International Relations Program here at the NYU SBS Center for Global Affairs, teaching courses such as the future of international relations and U.S. foreign policy. He also oversees ongoing research and consulting projects for the United Nations Security Council's Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. He has applied his skills in research and consulting for the U.S. intelligence community, the Department of State, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the UN, and many others. He is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations and is actively involved in the foreign policy and international relations community. The original session was recorded on Zoom on November 4th, one day after Election Day, and was hosted by April Cardena. Please note, All the opinions expressed in this episode does not represent the political views of the staff, faculty members, students, and the community here at the NYU School of Professional Studies. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming to our, I don't know, like fifth, sixth, how I got here, but this is our first ever how we got here. So this is a very special edition one because I know we're all wondering what's what's next, what's coming. Uh, yesterday was election day and I hope you all voted. If not voted early or dropped off your absentee or mailed it in, I have to make that PSA as I work for the Board of Elections. So just had to put that out there. But something that we want to talk about is, you know, how how is everyone? How did we get here? Uh, what's next? And without further ado, I would like to introduce Professor Michael Oppenheimer, who is a professor here at NYU. He leads the IR Futures Concentration at CGA. He teaches courses on international relations and U.S. foreign policy. He also oversees an ongoing research project, consulting project for the U.N. Security Council's Counterterrorism Executive Directorate. He's also applied his skills in research and consulting for the U.S. intelligence community, the Department of State, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the U.N., and many, many others. So it's exciting to have somebody as qualified and as involved as he is. Professor Oppenheimer, thank you for coming. Thanks for being here, for giving us your time. And we'd like to first know, how did you get here? How did you get involved? Could you tell us a little bit of why you're doing what you're doing? (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, April. Well, it's, it's, it's not a straightforward story. I've had a very long career, and uh, I guess it's not terribly surprising that I ended up here because my, my family was always very political, and my fondest memories uh, as a child was uh, political conversation, sometimes quite heated around the dinner table. And so I grew up with an interest in politics uh, and in international relations. My family traveled a lot. So that part of it is not surprising. I, I did history undergrad. Uh, I did international relations uh, in graduate school at University of Virginia. And when I left Virginia, the teaching opportunities were fairly slim and involved going to places like Mississippi. Uh, I'm sure Mississippi is a lovely place, but I didn't really see myself living in a place like that and discovered that I wasn't as devoted to teaching as I thought I was. So I I joined the the U.S. government 
and I spent a few years with the Congress advising congressional committees uh, on foreign policy, international trade kinds of issues, uh, writing reports, uh, giving testimony, uh, doing investigations and so forth. Love that, but didn't love Washington. That was, and now you'll probably be able to date, to date me, uh, but that was during the Nixon administration. It was uh, it was not a not a friendly place, not a comfortable place to be. I'd always had an interest in grad school and then uh, in, in the Congress in thinking about change and thinking, trying to think about the future, but doing it systematically as opposed to simply, you know, gazing into a crystal ball and became very aware when I was at the Congress of how myopic American decision makers tended to be, that they they stubbornly, you know, clung to their assumptions about the world, even while those assumptions were being sort of disproved by events. So not only did they not predict very well, they didn't either, they didn't even observe very clearly what emerging reality was, 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 uh, was doing to them. So uh, when I left Washington, I joined a small consulting company called the Futures Group, it's based in Connecticut, that specialized in thinking about the future and, and helping its clients corporate clients, government clients, think tanks, international organizations, helping those organizations think about change and developing strategies that incorporated possible changes in the world that, you know, wouldn't appear unless you were thinking seriously about, about possible surprises and discontinuities. And that turned out to be quite a robust business to, to well, our surprise. I mean, we were basically a bunch of eggheads that did this because we liked it, not because we thought we could make any money at it. It turned out we actually were able to make money at it. And so after about 15 years, we sold the company to a, a public relations advertising company called Ogilvy, Ogilvy and Mather. Ogilvy, about six months after they bought us, were, were gobbled up by the WPP group based in London, run by Morton Sorrell. WPP still exists. It's one of the largest global ad and public relations companies in the world. And, and so uh, that worked for a while and then, and then it didn't work. And I grew unhappy uh, working for WPP and left. Futures Group had been based in Connecticut. I moved to New York, started my own consulting company, emphasizing the use of futures techniques, mostly for government policy clients. So, most, so my clients were the Pentagon and the State Department and the White House and and uh, several others. And that was fun, <clears throat> a little insecure financially. And then the job at Center for Global Affairs came along. CGA was established by Vera Yelenik, who is still our dean. And I had known Vera. So when she started the uh, the program, what was used to be called SCPS, now SPS, I was the first full-time faculty hire. And so it was great. And it still is great. I've been I've been here now for 17 years and I'm, I'm accumulating little medallions, you know, from SPS that says, congratulations, you've been here for 10 years and congratulations, you've been here for 15 years and so forth. It's It's been a great place to be because it's allowed me to, uh, you know, take advantage of all I've learned in public sector and then in the private sector, uh, doing policy work to apply that knowledge to inform and educate students about the world and about how to think about the world. And and so and the program has evolved, of course, tremendously. It's it's much larger. It's much more diverse. And now we have what twelve or thirteen or so full time faculty members plus uh, several adjuncts, uh, well over two hundred students, and a variety of programs that are. Uh, academic, but also practical. Uh, earlier in introducing me, uh, a project I'm doing for the UN on terrorism, that's a project I do with students. And it's called a practicum. 
and it, it, it yields uh, full credit. It brings students into the decision process in the UN on these very, very important issues uh, and gives students a chance not just to learn about the UN and about terrorism, but also to actually you know, have an impact on UN policy. I used to say, you know, a lot of FaceTime uh, with top UN officials. Uh, now the FaceTime is virtual, but there's still a lot of interaction between between the UN and and, and the students. And I, I oversee that. I do that every semester and I have for the last seven years. So, you know, that, that kind of career sort of trail is not exemplary in any sense. It's not necessarily useful for anyone who wants to do this. If I have a word of advice about how to structure your career based on my experience you follow your your love you follow your passion and if you're if you're really really good which you probably and you stand a better chance of being good if you're doing something you like right you'll you'll find you'll find a way you'll find a profession the profession is the variable the things you love are not variable okay so i've applied my international relations interest again in government in the private sector, now in the academy. I, this is probably my last job, but I'm nowhere near retirement. So, that, I mean, that would be my advice if, if, if this is uh, part of the purpose here is to give, you know, younger people, students, a sense of sort of how you get to where you are. That's how I got to where I am. Thank uh, you. So, <laughs> sure. I know something you just said is actually a, a fabulous transition. And you said, you know, do what you're passionate about and just do what you love. I think especially this uh, past election cycle, a lot of people have started getting more involved in politics, and whether it's local, whether it's national. And, you know, many of them have no desire to, you know, be a political consultant or pundit or run for office. But what they're seeing and the things that they're hearing are making them want to be more involved. So uh, a question for you, because you did also mention that you do bring your students into, you know, your your passion and what, what you love to do and what you're involved in. So I, I guess just an opinion from you or, or your insight for those students who, you know, don't necessarily want to go into the political field or the political realm in any means, but want to be involved in, in you know, helping the grassroots level or, or get out the vote or voter registration drives. How do you, how do you tell them to get involved without, you know, becoming, without making this their, their profession, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we can all, I, as we should, we should all be involved in the civic, and it's our civic duty to vote, to get out the vote, to voice our opinions on we believe is right, moral, ethical, whatever it is. What's what's your insight on that? And how, what do you tell your students in, in that aspect? Volunteer, reach out, get involved, stay informed, be courageous. It makes a difference. It's made a difference in this election. This is this is an extraordinary election. I mean, we, we can talk you know, later, if you like, about the, about the results, but just the process, the turnout, the attention paid, the, 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 the amazing number of votes, you know, that were registered by various means, right, at the polling place, uh, at drop-off boxes, by mail, et cetera, uh, on election day and before election day, you know, just, just ex- an extraordinary degree of commitment among the American people uh, in the middle of a pandemic. So, you know, you are suddenly kind of operating now in a different political landscape, not not necessarily in, in the sense of one party or another dominating a system. And in fact, the, you know, the country is still deeply divided, but it's deeply divided at a higher level of commitment and engagement. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, I don't know what the turnout will end up being. 
Uh, I've heard estimates of, of over 70% of registered voters uh, having voted. It's overwhelming, uh, you know, states like Pennsylvania, for example, that won't necessarily have results until late this week or even next week. And Nevada, I think, has the same situation. So some of those seven or so states that are still outstanding and who will decide the election are, you know, dealing with this avalanche, uh, especially of mail-in votes. So so this is a, this is becoming a, a, this is becoming a more participatory political system which is, you know, which is part of the part of or should be a part of democracy. So obviously there are lots and lots of avenues to do this. You volunteer for a candidate, you volunteer for a party, you volunteer at the local level to help, you know, oversee the election, you count votes. I mean, whatever your particular interest happens to be, you know, the fact is that there are lots of opportunities to do this. And 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 this is extremely rewarding. And you know, if you want to if you want to get your point across, if you have an interest in political outcomes, that's the way to affect outcomes, is to get involved. I mean, this is this is a really, really, really consequential election. This particular election. Some people view it as the most important election in our history. You know, and and some of these some of these states are going to be very, very, very close. Right. So obviously, it means vote, but not just vote yourself, but but encourage others to vote. And and there are lots of opportunities to do that. I, I do think that everyone sees that now, right? We're we're all on edge just waiting yeah. for results, right? And I think also, um, I mean, we saw at the board, we saw a fantastic turnout for early voting, which was the first year we saw those kind of numbers. So I think people wanted their voice to be heard through the ballot box. So I think that's that's a good sign in terms of, you know, actual voter, uh, registered voters to come out. I mean, voter turnout is not prime, especially if it's not a presidential, right? So I know we were prior to everybody coming on board talking about the importance of of our primaries, talking about the importance of our senatorial districts, of our assembly seats, of our city council that's coming up next year. We have so many vacancies that are going to come up if you're in the city. If not, you, you know, be aware of what local elections are happening in your, you know, in your assembly district, in your election district, uh, in your township, in your county. So I think, you know, more and more people are coming to the realization that it matters and that they can make a huge difference, right? Flipping the seats has become such a used term, popular used term, because one party or the other wants to flip a seat for their, you know, because it brings more power and we're the ones that provide that. So I think it's very important, not only, like you said, to vote, but to get out the vote, bring your friends, tell your friends, Everyone who knows me knows I literally hound them to get to the polling site. And that's all I post. But it, it shouldn't be, you know, out of the norm to go as a, as a collective to vote. Well, you know, socially distant, obviously. But <laughs> making sure that you send out a group text and making sure that people are involved. And so I, this, this goes to my next point. And you, I think, will start getting into the actual, you know, heat of what we're here for and talking about election results. We'll talk about that and just, you know... I know it's something that we're all very antsy about. We're all anxious for whatever reason it may be. It's something that is is going to define this this election cycle. It's going to define the 2020 presidency. And um, so could you provide your insight on how you feel the climate is right now and what we can expect to see in the next couple of days with regarding results, you know, individuals or, you know, just what you think we'll see? Well, I mean, I uh, thank you for that. I mean, I think I think uh, clearly this is a, a deeply divided country. The Democrat Democratic Party hopes for an overwhelming rejection of Donald Trump uh, and an overwhelming endorsement of Joe Biden. Those expectations have been dashed. The Democrats hope for a flip in the Senate 
towards a democratic majority, I think had not been decisively defeated yet, but look well on their way towards defeat. It looks like it's going to be a 51-49 Republican majority in the Senate. Democrats lost perhaps four to five seats in the House, although they'll continue to control the House. You know, the, 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 the Democratic hopes in places like Florida and Texas and so forth turned out to have been a pipe dream. I always thought they were. But that kind of Democratic Party optimism, which you saw in 2016, by the way, persuaded Hillary Clinton not to visit Wisconsin, which was turned out to be a very, very big mistake as she went for a slam dunk by visiting places like Texas. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a lesson, I think, for, for uh, Democrats in the perils of wishful thinking and, and the perils of not, you know, sort of getting your ground game together and focusing on just winning elections as opposed to, you know, an overwhelmingly decisive mandate. I think, I think Joe Biden was probably a little more pessimistic and a little, a little more you know, sort of uh, strategically thoughtful about this than a lot of other Democrats were. So he spent the time in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and so forth, uh, as did Barack Obama, uh, as did Kamala Harris. And, and, and I think that that will end up being a really sort of a key decision he made, not to chase this idea of, you know, 400 plus electoral, uh, you know, college votes and so forth. But, but, but it means that, you know, it's a very deeply divided and highly partisan atmosphere. You know, that, that calls for, calls, calls for thoughtfulness on the part of Democrats, what's going on here. You know, why was a president uh, who really kind of uh, sloughed off the responsibility for the COVID pandemic and has left us with a weak economy and so forth, why did he do as well? What's what's what exactly is his appeal? Democrats need to figure that out. I think Joe Biden is the kind of guy who will actually try to do that, but but he's also going to be burdened by a an enlarged left wing in the Democratic Party who will tend to uh, want to go for broke, you know, in various areas of legislation, healthcare, for example. Not 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 that I think those are bad ideas, but in this current political environment, uh, with a very narrow presidential victory. And a Senate is still in the hands of Republicans. A lot of that is is just going to is will be wasted effort. Sort of pick his priorities very carefully. Starting with COVID, by the way. I mean, that's got to be his first priority. Is getting a COVID relief package through, which the you know which which uh, Trump has been unable to do, uh, even though his party controls the Senate. So we're still without uh, you know a robust relief packages to help people protect themselves, to help hospitals, to help schools reopen safely, et cetera, et cetera. So, so uh, you know, just in terms of looking at the results, and here I'm going to make a, a little bit of an assumption because I don't want to try to play two different scenarios here. Uh, it looks like it looks like Biden will prevail. Uh, he may prevail with 270 electoral votes, which is, you know, as narrow a victory as you can get. But, you know, if he if he if he wins uh, Arizona, you know, which it looks like he has some news outlets have called it already for him. Uh, Arizona, that is some haven't. He wins Arizona, Nevada, and then he, you know, he wins he wins uh, Omaha, Nebraska, which has one which has one electoral vote, and and then and then he wins Michigan and Wisconsin. He actually doesn't have to win Pennsylvania to get to 270, which is the bare minimum. So it, so I'm going to just kind of assume for purposes of this discussion that Joe Biden becomes our next president. Remember that even after he gets his 270, you know, Trump will be in, in court challenging ballots. So there's going to be a period of increased instability and fear, divisiveness, that even if those suits are dismissed, which I'm pretty sure they will be, even by this, you know, Supreme Court, that has now a six to three conservative majority, the poison from that whole experience will 
continue to sort of be, you know, in the veins uh, of the country for for some time to come. And it'll it'll deepen an already deep partisan divide between Democrats and Republicans. So, you know, despite that, let's assume Joe Biden wins this, a, a bruising election, deeply divided, a very sort of uh, energized Republican constituency out there uh, that will continue to follow Donald Trump long after he's left the White House. Trump's not going to go away. He, a, he won't go away quietly, and B, he won't go away. He considers himself the leader of a movement, and, and he will continue to try to energize and lead that movement. That'll have deep consequences in terms of whether the country can come together. So so uh, deeply divided, deeply polarized, serious possibility of, you know, of a frozen, you know, political system that can't or has great difficulty actually passing legislation. So can, you know, can you get a, a COVID relief package through that in that is substantial in helping states and, and helping institutions and supporting people that are unemployed and so forth? Uh, can you get that passed? You know, can you can you can you pass a budget, which has been difficult? over the last several years, actually just getting a budget passed to Congress. You know, he wants to do, uh, he wants to solidify uh, the Affordable Care Act. How does he get that through the Senate? Uh, he does, by the way, or we will all in a few days see what the Supreme Court does in response to, to uh, a suit challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. That's going to be an event that we have to, you know, pay attention to. But, but, but even assuming that the court upholds the act, you know, uh, Biden wants to expand it. Uh, and solidify it. Is he able to do that uh, in this Congress? What about tax legislation? You know, Democrats are committed to a more progressive tax system. The last tax legislation that was promoted by uh, the Trump administration is highly uh, 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 regressive. You know, huge benefits to wealthy people and not much for the middle class. I don't see uh, the, the Senate, you know, passing any major reform of the tax legislation. What about physical infrastructure? I mean, you can just go down, you know, down the line of all the all the unmet needs, right, that this country has. And it's very hard to imagine those needs being being addressed. Thank you for that, uh, Professor. I there's a question in the chat that I think this is more on like the political consultant side, but it's a great question that a lot of people and I maybe more of the current president's supporters would argue that, you know, why they don't think that Biden might win. But somebody posed the question, in 2016, the whole world was surprised or disappointed towards the firms when the official results were out due to the polling that they had, you know, conducted and, and showed the public. So four years later, how can we again explain such a difference in the results? Or do we do we think that there's going to be a stark difference like we saw four years ago? Do you have any insight on that or any thoughts? that you'd like to add to that? Well, you know, it's a it's a good observation. I mean, the polls, of course, were terribly wrong uh, four years ago. They were wrong again this time. They weren't as catastrophically wrong as they were earlier. And as I said earlier, fortunately, Joe Biden didn't pay a lot of attention to them and, and sort of just went about his business of, of trying to make sure that, you know, that that blue wall of, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois was was uh, sort of reestablished. We'll see whether he succeeded or not. But in terms of the way he spent his time, it's clear that he understood that the polls had a larger margin of error <laughs> than than the pollsters uh, acknowledged. So what's going on? And you know, I mean, we were told that polling uh, organizations deliberately corrected for the mistakes that they made in 2016 by including you know, a larger number of blue collar workers in, in their in their samples. I think most of us and myself included 
believe that the polls would be more accurate. Uh, I, I suppose they were somewhat more accurate, but they but they still they still missed it. They 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 still didn't see a large number of you know of Trump voters who may have been in the sample, but but didn't admit to supporting Donald Trump or, or, or weren't in the sample at all. And that's bad. I mean, because because polls affect elections, polls affect turnout, polls affect strategy of candidates. And if you're if you're spewing out polls and they're wrong, then you know then 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 you know you you become a part of the of the political problem. I don't know how to fix it. As I say, I think Joe Biden realized that the polls are to be ignored and just to go sort of full out to try to win the states that he had to win to win the presidency, and and not fantasize about some uh, overwhelming victory. But it's but but it 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 suggests that you know that we don't really understand our country very well. And that, to me, is one of Biden's priorities going forward, is, is going to be to try to figure this out. What is, what, is the, what is the lasting appeal you know, of a populist candidate who had four years to prove that he could govern the country and, in, in my view, failed? It's not as if he was an unknown quantity. He was an unknown quantity in 2016. I, so you can sort of understand how people might go for him. But we had four years to watch him. And yet, you know, he did, he did well. Not in, not, I think not good enough to win. But he still he still did quite well, and and so I think I think this is one of the real priorities that Biden's going to have to try to figure this out. I actually have a request for a question. So Jake, do you want to go ahead and ask your question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for this today. So Australia has a ninety three percent voter turnout, and yeah. we only have fifty five percent voter turnout. Mm-hmm. But they make it like essentially illegal to not vote with like a $20 fine. And that like seems to work really well for them by the numbers. Do you think that we like the United States could adopt some sort of like version of that where like, there's a legal issue to it? Because like the numbers seem like it's almost double of like voter turnout. It's almost 100%. Um, This is the exception of like homeless people don't have to, but like the vast majority of the population does. Um, And I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think there's some value in looking across the world and, and, and to see who gets this right, but to be cautious about whether, you know, you can simply adapt someone else's practice. I would be skeptical about about making this a requirement. It would obviously require legislation. You're not going to get it through a, a Republican Senate. I mean, if you did somehow through some miracle or if the Senate turned Democratic in two years, you still have to get it through the courts. I, I, I don't think that's a, you know, that fits very well within our political culture. I think a, I mean, I think the turnout in this in this instance was quite a bit higher than fifty percent. I think it's I think it, it looks like it's more like seventy percent. We'll see when the final numbers are in. So you know, maybe this is a breakthrough, uh, or maybe simply it's an expression of our deep polarization and anger. In which case, you know, that would not be a happy sort of number to, to be looking at. And maybe you'd rather have you know fifty percent you know turnout that at least represented people who were you know relatively satisfied you know, with the way the country was, was, was going. There's a lot of voter suppression, you know, so there are certainly things you can do within the Constitution to challenge the way, you know, we restrict voting, make it easier. Some of the measures that we've taken this time were a, a consequence of COVID. So allowing mail-in votes and encouraging, encouraging mail-in voting, encouraging early voting. In some cases, and we'll see about the constitutionality of this, allowing votes to be counted many, many days after the election, as long as they're postmarked, you know, by the election, modernizing the machinery of voting, you know, just making it much, much easier. And, you know, I don't know what that w- would produce in terms of turnout, but I'm pretty sure it would increase it. But I think that's probably the way to, 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 uh, to approach this. 
But again, that's a, as you know, I mean, that's a partisan issue. The Republicans don't want to encourage turnout. They want to suppress turnout. And, you know, and this feeds into this broader problem we have in this country that that the demographics of the country over time are challenging the Republicans to, uh, to be a viable part. And, and so they're deliberately suppressing votes that they think will go to to Democrats and trying to, in a sense, in a sense, extend their political influence beyond what the demographics would allow in a in a really genuine, you know, free and fair election. So, you know, again, I'm, and I'm speaking now, speaking now as a Democrat, the, the, the hope was that this election would be so decisive that the Republicans would fundamentally rethink what it means to be a Republican and to divorce themselves from Donald Trump and to, you know, develop a platform and a way of thinking that was genuinely popular to this very rapidly changing American population. Unfortunately, this election is not providing that kind of an incentive. So the Republican Party is going to double down on Trump and Trumpism, and they'll try to cling to whatever power they have in the Senate and in the courts, right? So now, I mean, the courts have been pretty well stacked with Republican nominees in Supreme Court and in and, and in lower courts, in a sense, that's that's the that's been the Republican approach. So uh, I love the idea of political reform. I, I, I think it sh- I think it should definitely be on the Biden agenda. But you're going to you're going to need a Democratic Senate it, it, just in order to get the first base on some of those some of those reforms. Going into you know what we should see in the next couple of years. Right. So uh, I think the oh, there's a lot of frustration uh I, I would say within both parties, having had conversations with both people currently holding office, people running for office, there's frustration with their party's candidate for president. A lot of people think Biden does not represent the Democratic Party. A lot of people want to remove themselves from this idea if you're a Republican, you're a Trumper. And I say that specifically to New York. And, you know, looking at different counties, different states, different regions, that varies, right? We have a lot more left leaning states, a lot more right-leaning states, but it just, New York is a consensus as since we're NYU, we'll talk about New York City. But it's talking about the future, right? Um, a lot of people also had this issue, the same issue with Donald Trump back in 2016, when they thought this person doesn't represent the party. Um, and, and that, I think, is more the moderate, you know, the moderate in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. So, I mean, I'll speak firsthand. I have friends who ran on both the Democratic line and the Republican line, um, respectively speaking, and, you know, didn't want to endorse a presidential candidate because they didn't want that to take away from their, you know, the potential, you know, obviously they needed their party's votes, but they also needed to cross over and get some of the other side for them to win. So there is, I think, a there's a grouping of individuals that are not happy with the party leadership or the face of the party. And this goes into now the the major two-party system, right? There are a lot of people that are frustrated with the fact that they can only vote for Democrat or Republican, that there is, you know, this this two major party system and you either pick the good or the bad. There's, you know, and, and that that varies depending on how you stand and where you stand in the political spectrum. What is your I, what, what is your opinion? Do you think there's a movement or do you think that there's going to be an opportunity for us to dismantle the two-party system? Do you think that's even something that we would be able to obtain or achieve? You know, with a lot of these third-party lines, working families, Green Party, Democratic Socialists popping up, you know, mm-hmm. do you do you see any of these making a, a wave or making a huge impact or, you know, rising 
and changing the this this two party ideology that we currently have? No, I don't. I haven't seen it. There've been many efforts, you know, uh, going back over the last you know forty or so years of third party candidates who actually ran for president and sometimes affected the outcome, but in in sometimes negative ways. I don't see uh, enough impetus behind a serious, uh, let's say, uh, you know, a left-wing party. I mean, I know there's this discontent within the Democratic Party with Biden, uh, because Biden is a centrist. He acquiesced and sort of accommodated uh, some of those views during the campaign. And in the platforms of the Democratic Party platform is more liberal than probably Biden would like, but he understands that there's a, a growing left wing of the party that he has to accommodate. My guess is that as a president, and particularly given the Republican control over the Senate and the closeness of the presidential vote, that he'll sort of tack back towards the center. And that's going to produce frustration, extremely liberal elements in the party. And But I don't think they have anywhere to go. I mean, I, I think, you know, the the country is is divided, and it's a pretty conservative country. And you know, Joe Biden, you know, he look, he survived a, a, a very rigorous and exhaustive and and long primary process. He came out on top. He came out on top, I think, because he, you know, he's a he's a healer. He's experienced. Uh, he appealed to a lot of people. It's always been the case with Democrats. You know, Democratic Party is very complicated. It's much more diverse than the Republican Party is, and that's the you know, that's one of the virtues of the Democratic Party is that it does have these internal debates and they never and they never stop. And they're a source of uh, strength. But I, do I see any sort of fundamental realignment? No. As I said earlier, I was hoping that a, a really decisive defeat for Donald Trump might have caused the Republicans to rethink what they were doing. And to jettison this, you know, this 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 kind of symbiotic relationship they seem to have with Donald Trump. Uh, but this result's not going to do that. So you do have two very different. Let's remember, you do, the party system has often been accused of, of being of, of you know uh, of the two parties being uh, indistinguishable, right? They're not indistinguishable. They're as different as they possibly could be. So you still, even with a Joe Biden who's a centrist, you've got a pretty fundamental choice to make between you know being serious about the environment and not being serious about income distribution and not being serious about a fair tax system and not, being serious about protecting people from COVID and not, all right? I mean, this is a very, very, very wide, you know, range of disagreements on all the fundamental issues that we, that we talk about. And so that's, you know, so you've, got a, you've got a pretty important choice out there. I think all of these points and all of these questions are what every citizen resident person living in this country has, right? It's this election will define some some aspect of their life in some way, whether it's positive or negative. So I think it, a lot of people say, oh, you know, all the voters, but it's every person that's really living here is anxious, is is nervous, is you know, we're all we're all waiting to see what's gonna happen. We've seen a couple of seats flip in you know our congress and our senate we're really waiting for these presidential results so i know we're not going to hear back for maybe a couple of days and that's also you know it gives us angst in its own way but just moving forward what what advice would you give to to people who are not seeing the results that they thought they should see or that they wanted to see you know i know we said get involved but 
what what do you think are the best things to do now? You know, we've mm -hmm. already voted. There's nothing, we can't go back and, you know, get more people to vote out. Obviously we can look forward. So what advice do you have for people in, with that regard? Yeah. First of all, just let me say, because we're, we're sort of getting towards the, the end of this. And what, I, what I haven't talked about yet is a, a Biden administration and the issues that it will face. Well, we've talked about the partisan issues it will face, which is that it doesn't control the Congress, controls the House but not the Senate. Uh, and doesn't control the judiciary and has relatively few uh, judicial appointments to make because the Republicans have made most of those appointments already. But let's be clear, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the Trump legacy, if we can now start talking about the legacy, is, is a huge burden on the country. I mean, you know, Joe Biden becomes president, you know, on, on the verge of a terrible, you know, pandemic spreading throughout the country, throughout the world this winter, right? Uh, he takes office in a period of, of, of recession, of low economic growth, high levels of unemployment. So it's not just the political situation he faces, it's the problems that the country has that he inherits. I mean, he reminds me, and I'm sorry again to be partisan, but this is another long line of, not a long line, but recent Democratic presidents who inherited a mess from their Republican predecessors. So, you know, this is Barack Obama inheriting the, you know, the, the financial and economic crisis uh, and a large American presence in Iraq from George Bush. And, you know, then spends the first two years of his, of his, of his tenure as president just trying to dig out from under those problems that, 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 that he inherited. Uh, Joe Biden's going to have a similar situation, except that Obama, at least for the first two years of his presidency, had a Democratic uh, Congress. And, and, Joe, and Biden doesn't. So, so you know, this is, a, this is huge, trying, as I said earlier, trying to get a COVID relief package, which has to be his priority, is going to be difficult, very, very difficult. Before we even get to the long list of sort of health care and income equality and other priorities that he's been uh, talking about. So where does that leave you sort of thinking, right? I think you have to understand the barriers that will confront him. You have to have, I think, modest expectations for what he can do, uh, even with the best of all intentions. And I think Joe Biden has very good intentions. I think he will try to reach across the aisle, but I don't think the Republicans are in a listening mood. They weren't in a listening mood for Obama. I don't think they're in a listening mood for Biden. So you have to start thinking about two years from now. There's a, the Republicans have a very small edge in the Senate, there are a, a lot of Republican Senate seats up for, you know, recompeting in, in 2022. So, you know, you start focusing, you know, on making the case that if you want Joe Biden to realize the potential, right, that he was elected for, then you need to get him a supportive Senate and you need to do all that work that involves campaigning and, 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 and writing op-eds and contacting people and talking to your friends and all the things that you can do to try to establish a firmer basis for, you know, for that 2022 race in the Senate. I don't want to be, I, I can't be too rosy because we just have to confront these results. And remember, they could have been a lot worse. So again, in my partisan view, they could have been a lot worse. And, and they still may be because this, this is not over, right? In my opinion, we have rid ourselves of a real danger to our democracy right? In the name of Donald Trump. 
right? This was not a guy who believed in American democracy, and we think he's going to be gone. So don't underestimate, you know, how important that is. Uh, even though we won't disappear off the face of the earth, we know that, right? And then start thinking about, you know, what we have to do in two years. Thank you for that, uh, for your insight. I think that's definitely, you know, all we can do now is look forward and learn from this and learn that our vote does matter and our vote does make a change. So with that being said, I know that we have a few minutes left. Jake, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, um, about like reversing the Trump legacy, like through your understanding, like from the ju from the judicial standpoint, couldn't he like they're saying like court packing, like he, he could still do that and like like have some sort of legislative reversal on gerrymandering. Like wouldn't those two steps kind of like fix a lot of these like lasting like issues that yeah. you're like talking about yeah i mean absolutely jake i mean if, if if you if you control the senate you could do those things and i think if 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 democrats control the senate i think that biden's legislative strategy becomes much more ambitious but i don't see it now i mean if you if you if you assume two years from now that that the democrats get to 50 50 in the senate which makes Kamala harris the you know the the, the vote that breaks that deadlock and they and they maintain their edge in the house, right? Which is fairly small. But just in terms of, of, of appointment to the to the judiciary, if you if you get that 50-50 in the Senate, yeah, you can start doing things. And to, I mean to me, that's what's really essential. I mean, for, for for Biden to establish a more lasting, you know, political standing and legacy, he's got to solve problems because the problems are huge, right? And they run the gamut from you know, listed some of them already. He's got to show the American people that government can still actually solve problems. It can pass legislation. It can it, it can invest, you know, in the country's future. It can invest in education. It can it can invest in the Green New Deal. It can it can actually do these things. I mean, I think that the country right now is deeply cynical uh, about whether government works, and it's entirely appropriate. The Republican Party doesn't want government to work. So, you know, I mean, the Republican Party has been fighting against government for, you know, since before Ronald Reagan. And and so people are naturally cynical. So, you know, while the, as long as the Republicans control the Senate, all those great ideas are going to sort of get deferred. And and if the Democrats can do well in two years, that could change. Professor Oppenheimer, I think I'm just going to ask you just do you have any closing remarks, any last word of advice for us? in terms of, if not just this election, just moving forward, you know, with regards to politics, life, whatever it is you want to pose to the group. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, you got to keep the faith that, you know, that there were, there was lots of speculation after Trump was elected as to whether American would survive or American democracy would survive, you know, four years of Donald Trump. It has, uh, certainly, the, as I said at the very beginning, the vote count itself is uh, encouraging. The people are still fully engaged, even more engaged than they were four years ago. We've elected, uh, again, if, if Biden prevails here, we've elected a very decent guy. Uh, I have a lot of faith in him. I think his heart's in the right place. I think he'll make good appointments. Uh, I like his legislative priorities. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make some, we'll make halting, pro we'll make progress. We'll make halting progress, but we make progress. Let's remember that Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. It's the same country that elected Barack Obama, who, which elected Donald Trump. We can talk a long time about how that happened. But there are legitimate, deep-seated grievances 
in that demographic that support and supported and still supports Donald Trump. Issues of income inequality, issues of lack of intergenerational mobility, issues of healthcare, life expectancy is in decline in many of these areas in the Middle West, in the Rust Belt. Uh, there's real misery. And, and those, so those problems are real. And, uh, you know, they have to be addressed and they can be addressed. But this isn't just bloody mindedness that's producing this large, this large number of votes for Donald Trump. There are real issues here. You know, they can be solved. Uh, hopefully the political system will come together and, 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 and solve them. So, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, I think it's important. I think those words of um, encouragement and just, you know, keeping, keeping, keeping the faith and making sure that you use that, you use that to move forward and to continue your journey politically, whether it's running for office, whether it's volunteering, whether it's getting more informed on local candidates. I, I, I want to thank you for giving us all of that insight and, sure. and your time. I know it's, everyone is super busy, but we really appreciate you, you know, enlightening us with all of that. Thank you to Professor Michael Oppenheimer. Join us in the next episode for John Burnett, a business executive with over 20 years of experience in the financial services industry and the managing director and founder of One Empire Group. The SBS Replay Podcast is produced by the students of the NYU School of Professional Studies Student Council with... Aggie Dent, Allie Weaver, April Cardena, Ariana Olivas, Shaquin Tao, Shirley Law, Shubra Mishra, Ding Wing. Special thanks to the NYU School of Professional Studies Office of Student Life. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SBSUSC and at SBSGSC. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode. Take care.